All right, good morning again. Let's go ahead and open up to John 12. John chapter 12. Last week, as we got back into the Gospel of John, um, I said that we would spend our time leading up to Easter, um, walking through basically the last week of Jesus' life. Um, that to me is a, just a beautiful thing because one of the awesome things that I get to see when studying is and, and kind of laying out really each year, the beginning of the year, wherever God would have us, it always seems to work out absolutely perfectly with Easter. And, and that's no accident on God's part. Um, for me, it just kind of happens because I'm not a detailed planner by any stretch of the imagination. And when I was kind of getting ready to get back into the Gospel of John, um, I honestly didn't know it was going to work out that way. And I started scheduling it out and looking at the different texts and where we would be. And, and as it began to unfold, it, it kind of was humbling to see how it was going to unfold. And I think it's going to be quite the journey for us leading up to Easter to see that happen, um, to spend this type of time looking at the last week of Jesus' life. You know, it's pretty common to get into Holy Week and to spend seven days, you know, really focused on those last few days, but to spend, um, in essence, four months looking at the last week of Jesus' life is going to be pretty spectacular, I believe. And the truth of the matter is this, that when we see Jesus and we see how this is unfolding, we see clearly that Jesus is just simply a different type of king. He doesn't fit the persona or the mold that um, our nature would long for. He doesn't fit um, the picture of a king that we would envision. And, and, and he's certainly not the type of king that Israel was looking for. Um, Israel was looking for this powerful, uh, political-type reigning king, and Jesus was so different than that. And to me, it, one of the beautiful things about Scripture, and this is simply just a gift of God's grace, is that God would tell the story from the beginning to the end of how He would redeem His people, His way with His king. That it would be something quite different than anything we would expect. It would be something different than any of us could ever imagine or draw up. But it was exactly the way that God would design. And that His design would be perfect. It goes against everything we could think, everything we could imagine. But it's the right way. It's God's way. And just as we saw... Recently, that the birth of Jesus was this humble pronouncement, this humble coming of a humble king to humble people. Today, we will see much of the same, that Jesus, once again, is a different type of king. That he's a humble king. A king that breaks the mold. And this is the main idea of our text for today, 
that Jesus is a humble servant that laid down his life to save his people for the glory of the Father. Hopefully you found John 12. We're going to be in verses 12 through 36. Um, And if you would, I would invite you to stand as I read through these verses. And then we'll spend our time together unpacking this section. John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that came had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are going, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowds that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. 
Father, again, we come to you and we ask that you would guide us through your word this morning, that you would bring blessing to the reading of it, and that as we unpack it, you would speak deeply into the very depths of our souls. We know that your word is more than sufficient enough to bring transformation to your people. So this morning, we ask that through the working of your Holy Spirit, you would do just that. God, that you would mute my lips and that you would speak through me what you would have us to hear. Because we know, Father, that regardless of who we are and regardless of the situations we face in life, You know each and every one of us, and we know that, again, your word is more than sufficient enough to speak to each of our situations. And we ask that as we go through this text, that any distractions we have would fade. Any walls that are built would be brought down. That we would hear the pure beauty of your good news, that it would melt hearts of stone, that it would change lives forever. You are a glorious God, and you have given us a beautiful gift in your word. May we treasure it this morning as it shows us even more the beauty of your salvation. May you receive honor and glory in our time together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So we're obviously covering a few more verses than we typically would this morning as we look at a humble king. The very first thing we come to this morning and seeing that Jesus is a humble king is that he makes a humble entrance. Again, in verses 12 through 19, we find a story that is more than familiar to most of us if we have been around church any point of our life. It's typically... The story of the triumphal entry that we hear on Palm Sunday leading up to Easter. The story of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. But the temptation is, with any well-known passage, for us to simply glance over it, to, to hit that main point, that main thrust, that Jesus is simply riding into town on a donkey, that he's being praised. But there's so much more to see. And that's why we wanted to cover more ground than just simply the triumphal entry. Because this whole section paints this beautiful picture of the humble king, Jesus. So as we are looking at Jesus as a humble king, we need to note a few key things. He starts in verse 12, the next day. This is immediately following the dinner at Bethany where Jesus and his disciples meet up at Simon the leper's home at Bethany. Um, with Lazarus, who has recently been raised from the dead. And we saw so many interesting things that happened there. 
One was the sacrificial element of worship that they displayed because we know that it had been said that anyone who would see Jesus must report him so he could be arrested. But instead of reporting Jesus, they throw Jesus a party to rejoice in the work that they had seen, that he had raised their brother Lazarus from the dead and even in the home of Simon the leper who he had healed. And so they're meeting to rejoice in Jesus, to glory in the work that Jesus had done. And we saw Martha serving them as this servant spirit. And we saw Mary take this jar of pure nard ointment that was extremely valuable and very costly and anoint the feet of Jesus, preparing them for the eventual death and burial of their Savior. We also know that the word of Jesus' appearance there was spreading and crowds were beginning to gather and this excitement is stirring because of the physical work that Jesus had done, that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. It's not every day that they saw someone raised from death to life and so they see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and the excitement is just spreading like wildfire. We also know that Israel had long waited for the Messiah to come. That they had long hoped for God's man to come about. But as I said earlier, their longing for the Messiah had been a little bit twisted because of what they wanted. They wanted a powerful, domineering king, a political Ruler, one who would come in and push back against the tyranny of Rome, the, the leadership of non-Israelite leaders. Because of this, as Jesus is coming into town, they give him this kingly welcome. They take the palm branches and they throw them at the feet of him as he's coming in. And they began to cheer and sing, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that term Hosanna in itself means save us, Lord. And that he would do. He would bring salvation, but not the salvation that they were expecting. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But as he entered, there was something greatly different about his entrance compared to all the other political leaders and rulers and military powers. It was typical that anyone in royalty or a decorated warrior would enter in one of two ways. Either on a massive white stallion or in a golden chariot. Yet, we see Jesus come in on the back of a donkey's cult. Jesus was just a different type of king. They wanted salvation and they were going to get the gift of salvation, but not the salvation that they longed for. More so the salvation that they needed. Isn't that exactly what we see in our own lives often? That we want something specific And God would grant those things, but not the way we long for. We have this mentality that we think things should be done our way, and 
or a particular way, and if they're not done that way, then they are not exactly right. But how often can we look back on our lives and see that things might not have went exactly according to our plans, but they're exactly the way that God would have them. And we're all the more better for it. To see how His grace has orchestrated our lives. And we see a picture of that with this humble entrance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Another thing that is quite interesting to me is so often in the Gospels we see Jesus telling His followers, don't say anything about this. He didn't want the attention because He knew it wasn't His time. But now here He is pronouncing as boldly as possible, the true King of Israel is here. See, Israel wanted him to be this powerful ruler, this king who would domineer over their enemies. But Jesus, being a humble and a very different king, comes to save his foes, to save the very enemies who would eventually want him dead. See, Jesus' kingship wasn't as a nationalistic leader for the physical nation of Israel but as a savior for the spiritual Israel made up of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. His salvation would be far greater than anything they could ever think or imagine. They wanted a, a, a right on the spot, a pure embodiment, but greater than King David was. And they got a person who come from the line of David, that's for sure, but he was going to rule much differently. But Jesus was a, a humble king who made a humble entrance. But he was far more than that. He was a humble servant as well. If I could, I want to read verses 20 through 26 again. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, upon Jesus' humble entrance, we also find this truth that he's a humble servant. He came to serve the will of God by becoming the Savior of God's people. If you remember in the garden, right before Jesus is arrested, He prays a simple, seemingly to us, prayer that, Father, if it be your will, just let this cup pass. He knew what He was about to endure. And he wasn't afraid of the crown of thorns. He wasn't afraid of the cross. He wasn't fearful of the nails and the mockery and all of that. What Jesus was asking to pass was simply bearing the wrath of God meant for all of his people, for all of 
time. That weight was much, much greater than anything that man could do to him. If you remember, Isaiah said it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and Jesus, being part of the triune God, knew that. He knew the weight that he was about to bear. And he had submitted to the will of God to save his people. That point alone should completely floor us. That God would not only create all things and include us in that creation, but that when sin comes into the world, that God had a plan from the beginning to redeem his people. And that part of that plan would be God coming in the flesh to rescue us. That God would come. Not that he sent an angel or uh, an angel army or some outside source, but that he would come himself. That he would be the one to lay his life down for the good of his people. The king's not perched on a hill watching an army fight, that the king is leading the charge. That the king is the one making the ultimate sacrifice. And we see clear evidence of this in the fact that now these Greeks are showing up wanting to see Jesus. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenantal promise with Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That ultimately the Messiah would come through his seed. That he would be the father of many nations. And here at this key moment of Jesus' ministry, we see these non-Israelite people coming to see Jesus. Now, it's important to note here that the only reason the Greeks were coming to see Jesus were because they were called by the Spirit to do so. Because the truth is, is that no one seeks after God unless he is first called by God to seek him through the work of the Holy Spirit. We've said so many times that it almost seems redundant, but According to what Paul writes in Romans 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's nothing good within us. And because we are sinners, because we are separated from God, there is no way that we can bridge the gap between ourselves and God. And so God comes by way of Jesus to bridge that gap for us. We can't go to God. We can't live purely to God. We can't give enough to make ourselves to God. We can't attend church enough to make our presence known with God. We can't be good enough. So Christ comes. And he lays himself down. Exchanging his righteousness with our sin, and calling his people into fellowship with him forever.
He's a humble servant. Who calls his people by name. How do we know this? We know that the cross is foolishness. We've said this many times before, but when we look at every other hero-type story in history, none of them compare to this. Right? Who could imagine that the God of all creation would come and die the most humiliating death possible for the good of His people? It makes absolutely no sense. But that's exactly what God did. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What a picture that God becomes the curse for us. And because God becomes the curse for us, we can then come to Him if by His grace He calls. Notice what we see in verses 25 and 26. It says, whoever loses his life, start over. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, as Jesus is a true servant of God's redemptive purposes, of God's redemptive plan, so are we, those who trust in Him, are to be servants of Jesus. God, through Christ, saves His people. And we see even here, and then all the way up through Easter, we'll see evidence after evidence after evidence of Jesus laying Himself down for the good of God's purpose. And if we are to be made into the image of Christ Jesus, then we are to lay ourselves down as Christ lays himself down. That's the call of the gospel. To come and die. To take up our cross. To bear the marks of what we see Paul write in Galatians 2, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about that verse. Paul, formerly of the nation of Israel, one of their greatest proponents, miraculously saved by God on the road to Damascus, turns from terrorist to missionary. In Philippians, he says, I've counted all things as loss just for simply knowing Christ as my Lord. And here to the Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Everything within me is gone. I am simply His And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. My life is completely His. All things have been set aside. It is me living for the glory of my King. And he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, the truth is that God loved Paul long before Paul loved him. 
And here we see this call to die to self and to serve Christ. Just as Christ laid himself down to serve the will of the Father. True living is absolute surrender to the giver of life. We can put our own definition on success in life if we want. We can try to define the terms how we want to define them. But ultimately, true living, true joy is absolute surrender to Christ. then we might be able to echo what Paul says to the Philippians, that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Just for knowing him. It's more than enough. Every ambition we have, every longing, want, desire is nothing without knowing him and being known by him. So our humble king comes and enters Jerusalem in a humble way as a humble servant, bringing a humble message. I'm going real Baptist on y'all this morning. Like, you see that? Like, yeah. Look at verses 27 and following. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Man, we could spend the rest of the year unpacking that. I'm going to read it again. I don't want you to miss this. You almost see like a little bit of uh, sarcasm here with Jesus as he's responding to his followers. But notice the depth behind it. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And as a way of saying, no. He says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself. This message, a humble 
message is a message of true victory. How many times do we hear preachers say that we have victory in Christ? I mean, if you grew up in church, you probably remember singing the song, Victory in Jesus. But how much have we morphed that message into a message that is simply about us and not about the work of Christ? See, this message of victory, this message of Christ is not of our personal victory over this world. But it's about Jesus' victory over sin and death by way of the cross. His entire purpose in coming was to become a sacrifice to atone for the sins of His people. Again, I said it earlier in Isaiah, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the Father's will to crush the Son so that through the Son the world might be saved. So Jesus' death isn't about us having victory over our own issues and agendas. No, it's about trusting fully in Him and His work. And yet so often we twist this message to be about us. The gospel isn't about us. The gospel is about Christ. The gospel is about the glory of God. By His grace we get to receive it. But it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about us claiming personal victories and and doing all this stuff. This is not a name it and claim it faith. Recently, I was thinking about something in particular and it was about someone who was struggling with something and, and they're kind of being faced with this type of name it and claim it in gospel. But at the end of the day, that, that's not going to bring victory to anything. I mean, you think about this for a moment. This whole name it and claim it type of theology, what value does it have? What can I claim if I am nothing more than a wretch? How can I have victory over sin and death if I am nothing more than a mere sinner? It's impossible. The only way to be free from sin and its effects is to trust in the one who is greater than sin and its effects, and that is Christ Jesus the Lord. And this is why the message right here of Christ is so humbling. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up, not in a way as to be lifted on a throne to rule over all of them in the way that they were looking for, no, but to be lifted up on an old rugged cross to die for His people, to cover their sins, to bear the wrath of God in our place. And it's not us, the deserving sinners, who are being lifted up. It's the perfect, sinless Son of God who is lifted up. As He submits to the will of the Father, He is bringing about the possibility of redemption for His people. He is securing redemption for His people. And again, this is not about Jesus being some nationalistic leader that Israel had longed for. This is about Him being the spiritual leader that they had always needed. 
The one that the scripture was teaching them was coming, but they missed it. Right? The one who would seek and save the lost. The one who would lay himself down. The one who would be a servant first. This Jesus has come and he has pronounced himself now. And where everyone says he should tell and run, he says, this is the purpose of which I have come to this hour. To give my life as a ransom for many. And when they begin to question his reasoning... Throwing these theological bombs at him. Like, ah, wait a minute, the Son of Man will remain forever, but now you're saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's not quite adding up there, Jesus, and his response simply is, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. They missed it. For thousands of years, they longed for his coming and they missed it. And so he simply says, the light is here. Walk in the light. Because the truth is, is that Jesus is the light, and in him is no darkness at all. So walk in the light, not as slaves, but as beloved children. One of the most beautiful things about the call of the gospel, and we see this throughout the New Testament especially, that the call of the gospel is to lay ourselves down. Right? To be servants, slaves of Christ. But how different is that from what our definition of a servant and slave typically is? You know, when we think of servants and slaves, we come with a very negative connotation, and rightfully so. History has shown us that mankind can do some horrible things. But a servant and a slave to Christ is so far different because we are beloved children. We had no hope. None. But through Christ, we have all hope, right? We had no salvation. No way to bridge the gap between God and ourselves. So God provides in Jesus. One of my kind of favorite texts when thinking about this idea is in Ephesians 5. We know Ephesians 5 to be kind of like this picture of the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife, but but the very beginning of that, 
really kind of speaks to so much more than that. And we know that ultimately this picture of husband and wife relationship in Ephesians 5 is talking about a relationship to the relationship of Christ and his people. But in Ephesians 5, 1, it says, therefore, right? And, it, and it's building off of this idea that it's, that it's God who saves. So, so therefore, be imitators of God. Well, what's it say after that? As beloved children. It doesn't say be imitators of God so you will be loved by God. It doesn't say do God's work so that he will love you in return. It doesn't say do the things of God to earn the merit and favor of God. It says be imitators of God as beloved children. Past tense. God has already loved his people. He has already displayed his love for his people in the death of his son. And so he then says be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ, past tense, loved us and past tense, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This very different and humble king is the king, not that we necessarily longed for, but he is the king we desperately needed. And his mission is to give God glory by saving his people from sin's curse and eternal punishment. And so this humble king comes to seek and to save those who are lost. Won't you trust this king? I don't know all of your stories. I don't know your situations. But I, but I do know this, that the danger of living in a more rural area, in the South especially, is that most of us have some type of background in or with the church. That we've heard a cultural gospel that if we just do more and try harder, that God will favor us in the end. That if we just simply live a good life, that it's good enough. That's not true. Because remember earlier I said what Paul writes in Romans is that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one escapes that. No one is removed from that. No one is exempt from that distinction. But then he also writes a few chapters later that the wages of that sin is death, right? So we're all sinners, and there's no getting by. So every one of us in here fit that category, 100%. We are all sinners. And the due penalty for that is what? Death. There's no denying that. We are destined for death. But God, right? Ephesians 2. But God comes in Christ to save his people. Bearing sin's curse. Carrying the wrath of God. And that is the only way to salvation. So if you're trying to trust yourself, if you're trying to merit the favor of God on your own, I'm begging you to quit. Because there will be a day where we all stand before God and we're going to hear one or two things. Either well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. 
And if we're trying to do this on our own, if we're trying to merit the favor of God, I'm going to tell you which answer you're going to hear. This is not a postulization. It is truth. If you're trying to work your way to God, you will hear, depart from me. No ifs, no ands, no buts. No excuses. Today you have heard the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of salvation. And according to Romans 1, that means you, we are definitely without excuse. Will you please trust him today? Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious gift you have given in the salvation that you bring through your son, Jesus. Now may we today trust in you and you alone. That we would surrender to Christ and Christ alone. All for the glory of God.